So if you have your Bibles, uh, please open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 31, as Jill read for us this morning. And, and there is an interesting parallel between the city of Corinth in the first century and the United States today, so our culture today. So just a really brief history lesson. So the city of Corinth in the first century Rome was much different than in ancient Greece. In fact, at one point when Rome was sort of sweeping through the Mediterranean, they completely destroyed the city, burnt Corinth to the ground. But because it was in such a strategic part of Greece, they needed to rebuild the city. And so they began to rebuild. And this is who began to move to the city of Corinth. You had tradesmen, so working class folks. You had former military and you had former slaves. So the makeup of, of Corinth in the, in the first century was largely those who were trying to make a name for themselves. They were trying to build wealth. They were people that didn't really have status in and of themselves, but they thought, hey, if I work hard, if I go and sort of make my fortune in Corinth, then maybe I can establish some sort of status, some sort of wealth, some sort of honor and position. Kind of sounds similar to how we view the American dream, right? There's an American dream. You could kind of think of, hey, the Corinthian dream. This was the culture that the church lived in that the Apostle Paul was writing to. The Corinth placed a very high value, and really the culture placed a high value on skill and ability, on wealth and resources, on power and influence, status and image. All of these things were seen as necessary to success. Similar to our culture in many ways. Let me give you a little thought experiment just to sort of illustrate this point. Let's say you wanted to start a business or a nonprofit, and you wanted that thing to have global reach. You wanted to be successful all across the globe. Who would you recruit to be part of your company? Who would you recruit to be part of your organization? Well, you would want the smartest people you could find, right? You would want people who are good at strategy. You would want to find people who were good at maybe geopolitical politics and knew how to navigate different cultures. So you're looking for really smart people. You need people to back this venture, so you're looking for wealthy people, right? It would be helpful if you could get some famous people, maybe some social media influencers or some celebrities to kind of champion, hey, you should, you should know about this company, you should know about this nonprofit, because they're going to give you great PR. Speaking of PR, you need advertisement, you need good public relations, you need a good brand so that people, when they see your company, they associate it with a hip, a cool a effective brand. All of these things sort of point to, or all of these things are said to be necessary for success, especially if you want to have a global impact. Now, now consider this. The church, the church is an organization that has a global mission. Like the church exists to see the gospel spread throughout the world. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. Go to every tribe, tongue, and nation, all peoples. And so the church, we want to see the kingdom of God advance, not just in Bellevue, Nebraska, or in, this, in, in our region or our nation. We want to see it to go all throughout the world. And so if our mission, if our mission is global, what kind of people do we want here? And First City Church, you think of just us individually. We are a church in a particular location, but we want to see the impact, our impact be global. This is why we support church planting. 
and missionaries. This is why we want to see, we want to get behind uh, organizations that are spreading the gospel. Who do we think needs to be here? Who do we think needs to be a part of the church if the church is going to actually have global impact? Do we believe, do we believe that in order for the gospel to spread, we need the most skillful and the wealthy and the most powerful and the most influential, those with the most status and the most image? Do we believe that? Who do we want in the room? Who do we want a part of this thing called the church? What are our expectations for city? Because let's be honest, let's be honest. It's not just that those things supposedly work. It's not just that we're told, hey, these things create successful ventures and successful enterprises and successful nonprofits and successful churches. There's also a part of us that wants to be that. Like how many of us, if we're honest, man, I want to be the smartest person in the room. I want to be seen as someone who's smart. I want to be seen as someone who is wise and good at strategy. I want to be seen as somebody who is very influential because when I spend time with people, I affect their life and they come to me. How many of us want the status that comes with being seen as skilled, as intelligent, as influential? How many of us want to just be somebody? And so we see those measures of success and we're like, that's what I want. Because if I can be that, then people will view me in a particular way. Church, a little bit of honesty is going to be needed this morning because what God's word is going to confront us with is sort of flipping the script on how we think about success and what it means to be used by God. Look, there is nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to be used by the Lord. We should want to be used by the Lord. We should want to be fruitful. We should want this church to grow numerically and also in maturity. We should want to see our influence carry all throughout the globe. That is a good thing. But why do we want that? Why do we want that? Do we want that for our status so that we can be validated, so we can say, hey, look at First City Church, look who we are or for the glory of God and the fame of Christ? Why do we want to be successful? Why do we want to be fruitful? So throughout this opening chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has been confronting the Corinthian church's mindset of exalted self. We've seen this over the past several weeks. He he confronted the mindset that created cliques. Last week we saw that he confronted this mindset that valued worldly wisdom that exalted self over the wisdom of the cross. And this morning in these verses, we are going to see how the Apostle Paul is confronting the status chasing that the, that the Corinthian church was involved in. You see, they were still viewing their identity through the lens that skill and ability, wealth and resources, power and influence, status and image, that, that validation were the key to success, that validation is what they needed And they were importing that mindset into the church in the way that they were doing ministry, the way they were relating to one another, the way they were viewing their identity. And the Apostle Paul is going to flip this on its head. He's going to confront them and also give them a different perspective about what it means to be the church and how the power of God works through us. This is what he writes in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So Paul says, hey, look around. Just take stock of the church. Like, some of you come from wealth. Some of you come from background of influence. Some of you were somebody, so I had some status. But most of you didn't. Most of you come from backgrounds that aren't of noble birth or didn't have this high education in view as wise by worldly standards. Most of you didn't have status, which made sense considering that Corinth was largely made up of people of low status. If you were a tradesman, former soldier, a former slave, you were kind of at the bottom rung of the societal ladder. And what Paul is calling them to do here is to consider something very important. Look, it wasn't your status that caused God to call you. It wasn't your nobility and your wisdom and your skill and your image that God called that caused God to call you. Paul was saying, look around. The kinds of people that God calls are not the impressive kind. The kind of people that God calls, you don't sit there and go, wow, I totally understand why God called that person because we need him. No, most of the people God calls, you look and you're like, hmm, yeah, okay. Okay, I suppose. Cool. Cool. Like, there's nothing in this, these people that would immediately sort of give someone the sense of like, okay, I understand what God is doing. But look, friends, when we treat the church like a business or, or perhaps a professional sports team, this is what we do. We think, well, well, God, we need to go and recruit the really good speaker, so go, go call one of those. Or we need to really recruit, we need to get the strategy guy, so can you go call some of those? Or we need some wealthy people to finance this thing, so can you call some of those? Go find the brightest and the best and call those people God, because if we're going to be successful here, we need to recruit some. This is not how God operates. (laughs) This is not what the Apostle Paul is calling the church to be reminded of here is to say, this is not how God operates. Paul is saying, hey, here, time out. Status, skill, doesn't have anything to do with God calling people. So why are you trying to elevate it? Friends, it wasn't your status. It wasn't your skill. It wasn't as if God said, well, I need that thing to be successful and for my power to work in this world. That's why I'm going to call you. That's not why God calls you to the church. God's calling looks at something very different. It's grace. It's not in and of ourselves. It's not because of our performance. It's not because of our status that God calls us. There's grace. So why? Why do we feel the need to seek status? If, as the Apostle Paul points out here, that the status had nothing to do with our calling, why do we feel like we need to seek it? Why is it that we want to drag status into the dynamic of the church? Why is it that we want to even view ourselves and validate ourselves through our skills and our ability and our status and our power and our wealth? Well, it goes back to what we've been saying for the past month, that there is this bent in us toward exalting self. We want to earn, we want to achieve that we may feel good about ourselves, that we can assert ourselves and we can receive the praise of others. Over and over and over, we are drawn, we are bent, we are lured. It's just sort of our natural operating procedure. 
to want to assert ourselves and exalt ourselves. And this is yet another way that we do that when we seek status. And look, if you've ever had sort of a king of the moment experience, you know how addicting this is. If you've ever had a moment where you had this great victory and all eyes were on you and all the praise was on you, you know how addicting that is. Look, there's nothing inherently sinful from receiving praise for a job well done. But what happens when you need that? Like, I think of the victories that you've had, whether in your work or maybe some of you that were athletes or maybe you accomplished some task and it was difficult. Whatever it was, you received praise and you were in the limelight. And then you were like, man, that felt good. Let me go find that again. Let me go chase that again. Or maybe we can flip this around a little bit differently. Maybe you've been at the receiving end of criticism and people have actually cut you down and damaged you to such an extent that you're looking for something, something to validate yourself. And so you will chase success in any way that you can because you just need to feel some level of self-worth. If you are honest, you just feel so terrible about yourself because of the damage that people have done to you. That there's something in you that needs success, that needs validation, and so you'll chase it. And so you will, you will try to find some way for people to look at you and go, yeah, you're good at this. You have worth because of this. Friends, what happens? What happens when this is how we live and we bring this into the church? What happens when this mindset affects our community? What happens when this mindset affects the way that we serve one another, the way that we use our spiritual gifts, the way that we love, the, the way that we interact and are in community with one another? What happens when everything is built on status? Well, we see what happens. Division, fighting, comparison, pride, unhealth, shallow relationships, preferences over loving and serving. Friends, it does damage when status becomes the thing that we chase in the church. Oh, it's understandable why we would do that. We are so insecure. But it does damage. And this is why the Apostle Paul is pressing hard on this mindset. In fact, he takes it a step further. He says, to seek status and to make church community about status doesn't only just do damage to the church, it actually is to work against the way God works. Here's what he writes in verses 27 and 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God purposefully uses what is foolish. God purposefully uses what is weak, what is low and despised. The things that are not, which literally means the nothings and the nobodies. God purposefully uses them. You see, God's ways are incredibly counterintuitive. God has flipped it on its head. What we value, what we value, what we think gives us status, what we think is the means by which God's power is going to work in our lives, God says, no, that's not. God purposefully chooses what is foolish and weak and low. I mean, just consider 
how God chose to save the world, the cross. Consider of all the ways God could have saved the world, he chose the cross. I mean, the cross is foolishness, right? It's a place of scorn and death and defeat and humiliation. It seems like the last place on the earth you would ever look for wisdom. Yet the cross is the wisdom of God. It leads us to God. It's the lens by which we see what it means to follow God and know God. The, the cross shames the wisdom of this world, meaning it pushes it aside and says, you are worthless, you are powerless, you have nothing to offer. It removes it, it removes status from the wisdom of the world because the worldly wisdom is empty and hollow and powerless. The cross is weakness, it's torture, it's death, it's the giving up of power, it's not victory and strength as the world sees it. Yet through the cross, what happened? God saved us, God is renewing the world, God is pow- his power is to transform all of creation, works through the cross. The cross is low and despised. The worst of the worst were crucified. To be associated with the cross, to be associated with crucifixion, to be associated with the scum of the earth, the truly shameful and the disgusting. The cross is where the nobodies and the nothings were put to death. And yet, on the cross, a nobody and a nothing defeated sin and death. On the cross, a nothing and a nobody accomplished a redemption more powerful than any of our strategy, any of our politics, any of our education, any of our science and technology could ever accomplish. See, on the cross, nothings and nobodies had a victory. And power was displayed. The cross that the world sees as shame and worthy of being despised, there's no glory on a cross, was the greatest display of God's power and glory the world has ever seen. This is how God operates. God chooses what is foolish and weak and low and despised. The nothings and the nobodies. Consider this, when God needed a PR person to go to Pharaoh, who did he choose? A scared stutterer named Moses. When God needed a a general to lead an army, who did he choose? Gideon, who was the least of his family and who was a farmer. When God needed a king, he chose David. And yeah, we think of David as his great king, but never forget this. When the prophet told Jesse to go call his sons, they forgot about David because he was a nobody. When when God sends his son into the world, how does he send him? He sends him to a backwater province, into the family of a tradesman. He's a carpenter. He's a nobody. When Jesus calls his disciples, who does he call? He calls fishermen, uneducated. He he calls a despised tax collector and despised zealot who was a right-wing terrorist. Nobodies, nothings. And who is Jesus building his church with? Is he building his church through the elites and the wealthy and the powerful? Is he building a political kingdom? Is he building an empire? Is he building armies here? No. Jesus is building his church with average, ordinary, messy, broken people like you and me. Like church, just consider, look around the room. I don't see any presidents in here. I don't see any senators. I don't see any millionaires and billionaires. I don't see the elite of the elite. And this is not to cut us down. This is to say, look who God calls. Ordinary, normal, broken, messy people. And how, what does he call us to do? Live normal lives. Love and serve one another in the midst of our pain and our sin and our suffering. Proclaim the foolishness of the gospel and the cross to this world disciple one another 
But there's nothing flashy about this. Like the church isn't glitz and glamour and PR and branding. It's ordinary, lowly life. But look, listen. When God sends the gospel to your neighbor, who does he send? You. When your brother or sister needs someone to love them and share the love of Christ and serve them, who does he send? Not the wealthy and the rich and the wisest person in the world. He sends you. When God calls for the gospel to spread through Bellevue, who does he call? Not the professionals. Not, not the PhDs. Not the most charismatic personalities. He calls you and he calls me. And friends, he chooses to use us and chooses to exercise his power through us. The foolish things of this world. This is the great hope that we have. Because look, though church is ordinary, though community is ordinary, this is where the Spirit of God is. Friends, this is where God has put all his chips. He is all in with this lowly, ordinary, unassuming, not flashy community. He is all in. His Spirit is here. Christ died for us. He died for his bride. He died for his people. And his power works in and through us. And so, what this means what this means is there's no place here for us to seek status. There's no place here for us to chase after status through skill and being impressive through intelligence, impressive through personality and being charismatic. Because look, there's no boasting here. That God chooses us weak and broken, foolish things well, why does he do that, as verse 29 says? So that none of us can boast. So none of us can say, look what I did. Look what we did. Look what my intelligence accomplished. Look what my strength. Look what my wealth. Look what my personality accomplished. No, it's all the grace and the power of God. And that God uses the foolish things of this world, puts our abilities into perspective. Because, friends, it's not your accumulation of knowledge it's not through your accumulation of wisdom and the accumulation of wealth and the accumulation of success. It's not because of your personality that God works through you. Look, if you don't crucify those things, if you don't submit those things to Christ, they're going to be means for you to grab status. If we don't have the same mindset the Apostle Paul had, and he wrote about in Philippians 3.8, where he said, I count all the success that I had, and he had a lot. All the status that I had, and he had a lot. I count all of that as dung, as waste, compared to knowing Christ and having his power work through me. If we don't take that mindset, we're going to run around trying to grab status. Our gifting is going to become a means by which we try to assert ourselves rather than the means by which God is going to work. Can God use your intelligence? Can God use your wealth? Can God use your personality? Can God use your gifting? Absolutely. Look, it's a good thing there are wealthy people in the church and powerful people in the church. It's good things that there are people with a lot of resource and status in the church. That doesn't mean that we look, look down our noses at them. God can use those things and he can use your gifting in a way because he gave those things to you. 
But he doesn't call you. He doesn't use you. He doesn't bring fruitfulness to you. He doesn't exercise his power in you and through you because of those things. We need to learn how to crucify those things. We need to learn how to set those things aside. We need to learn how not to seek status in the community through those things. We need to learn what it means to say, hey, it's the power of God that allows me to enter in and disciple my friends. It's the power of God that equips me to go and serve. It's not my intelligence. It's not because I have a charming personality. It's not because I'm wise and I know all the strategies on how to help people. It's because I have the Holy Spirit. So friends, God uses the foolish things. God uses the foolishness of the cross and the foolishness of our weakness and the foolishness of our ordinary methods in the church and the, and the foolishness of just ordinary life. And so the, the truth is, is that, hey, if you're gifted, because some of you really are, it could be a challenge for you to not rely on your gifting. It can be a challenge for you not to find your identity in your gifting because that has brought you status, that has brought you validation in the past. And so it is so easy, so easy to run to those things. On the flip side, the good news for you who feel like nobodies, who who feel unimpressive, who feel like you're on the short end of the talent stick and the status stick, those of you that feel too messy and too broken, full of failure, you're exactly the kind of people God chooses. But, but, there is going to be a pull for you as well to try to find status through the world. The, The way that the world finds status, the way the world says, hey, I need to go and become more intelligent, or I need to become more wise, or I need to accumulate more wealth or more success. I need to work on my personality. Look, if you've known nothing but shame and you've known nothing but people beating you up and criticizing you, that pull is going to be strong. And so you need to push back on the temptation to try to find your status and your identity and your power through those things as well. We don't chase status. That isn't the path to the power of God in our lives. Or friends, if you are despairing this morning, if you're despairing because you don't think God can use you because you don't think you're gifted enough, the answer to that is not take your ball and go home. The answer to that is not, hey, I'm just going to retreat and pull back. No, friends, the power of God is at work in your life. You can be used by God. God has chosen to use you if you are part of his church. And if we are in Christ, here's what verses 30 and 31 tell us. If we're in Christ, as Paul goes on to say, why would we care about status in other places? And because of him, you are in Christ, Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It says that Christ Jesus himself became wisdom And he became our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Here's what we have in Jesus. Let me illustrate it this way. There's a difference between receiving a gift and receiving something that belongs to someone. Like those of you that are sports fans. Imagine receiving in the mail 
your favorite sports player, just a jersey of theirs signed. That would be cool, right? But imagine being at a game and then pulling off the jersey they wore in the game, signing it and giving it to you. That would be extra special. Why? Because it was theirs. They used it. It actually has their sweat. Or imagine getting a gift from your parents. Let's say you get a car from your dad. It's one thing for your dad to buy you a new car. What if he gives you his prized classic car? That's special. Why? Because it's his. This is what Christ has done. Christ has given us something special. So lock in with me here. It's not just that Christ gives us wisdom. He gives us himself. He is the very wisdom of God. And so it's not just that we have a bunch of precepts and rules. We do have precepts. We do have rules. But we have Christ in us. We're united to him. His power is in us. And we walk in the wisdom because we're in him. The righteousness that we have. It's not just God says, okay, you're not guilty. No, we have the actual righteousness of Christ. The righteousness he earned by his perfect obedience. Sanctification. It's not just that the power of sin has been broken. No, when Christ went into the grave in his death, his death broke the power of sin in your life. Him rising from the grave, that resurrection power, is the resurrection power you have. His life in you. The redemption that you have. Christ didn't just buy you back from slavery to sin and death. He brought you into the family. He brought you into the relationship that he has with his father. He has made you part of the family that he is a part of. Christ gives his very self. That is the status you have. That is the identity you have if you are in Jesus. So friends, why would we chase status in our own ability? Why would we chase status in our own intelligence? Why would we chase status in our own wealth? No, this is what Christ has done. And if this is what Christ has done, why would we ever, ever try to import that into this community? Well, why would we think that we're impressive through our own efforts? Why would we think that God has called us because of something we have accomplished? Friends, we are able to put this mindset to death as we more and more see who we, who we are and what we have in Christ. Why boast in anything but the Lord? Paul quotes Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, which says this, let, the not, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and know me. So let's rephrase this. Why would I boast in my status, in my ability? Why would I boast in my wealth when I have the riches of Christ? Why would I boast in the power that I have and the ability that I have when God's power is made perfect in my weakness? Why would I boast in my wisdom when I have the wisdom of Jesus Christ? Why would I boast in my discipline when I have the Holy Spirit renewing me. There's no room to boast here. And so if we're going to let go of status seeking, if we're going to put to death all the attempts that we have to try to validate ourselves, 
We need to see what we have in Jesus. That's the good news here, friends. So, in conclusion, let me say this. My, the, the proper response to a passage like this is twofold. One, this should humble us. If you have been one that has found status in your ability, in your intelligence, in your wealth, in your personality, whatever it is, if you have found status in those things, this should humble you. But it should not lead you to despair. It should actually encourage you. Because as you lay those things aside, the power of God will more, more be at work in your life. The foolish things that we often don't want to be is the very thing that God calls us into that his power might be displayed in us and through us. So if you want to see God's power at work, if we want to see God's power at work, let us embrace the foolish things. Let us set aside and crucify all of our status-seeking. Let us walk in humility, but let us also walk in faith, knowing that God has empowered us to love, to serve, to disciple, to share the gospel in this community. Amen? Let's pray.